You're listening to the CapEx Big Question podcast, where we're joined by other investors, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs discussing global game-changing trends and burning topics that keep investors up at night, one question at a time. I wanted to uh, chat to you today, Eric, around a number of things. In particular, I listened to a conversation that you had on this topic some time back, and I chuckled to myself as you described your experience with private bankers at what was the most prestigious investment bank. <laughs> and I chuckled because we all know that nobody likes, you know, the guy with a moustache and a leather jacket trying to sell you a crappy used car. Private bankers might not have moustaches or leather jackets, but instead they've got you know, pointy shoes, big watches and $1,000 suits. But both of them are really great at making you feel good. And sometimes, I'd suggest quite frequently, neither have much more than a surface knowledge about the products that they're actually flogging. So perhaps if we could start at the beginning of your slide into the investment world by providing a bit of a brief synopsis on your background and how it came to be that firstly you had money to manage and then the path that you took to leading you to educating yourself and managing your money. I ran a software company in the 90s and uh, things were going well. We were well on our way to uh, eventually being ready for an IPO. But the valuations in the late 90s were just obviously in a bubble. And I uh, I recognized correctly that it was time to get out and the company wasn't quite big enough to take public yet. So we were required a $31 million pooling transaction uh, after paying off brokers and partners and so forth. little over half of that was mine. And uh, my initial instinct is I wanted to focus my energy on exactly what I should have focused my energy on, which is learning to run my own money. And I was talked out of it by the M&A lawyer that handled the transaction, and that cost me more than half of my net worth. Uh, I was basically persuaded that uh, I, I was big enough to attract the services of the most prestigious investment bank on Wall Street and will be crazy to run my own money. And of course, the exact opposite is true. Uh, these guys are uh, a bunch of crooks. They, they uh, don't care about making money for you. They care about making money for themselves and they're con men. And so uh, I got suckered into a 10-year private equity fund uh, with a huge overallocation of most of my net worth. And then they mismanaged the remainder through the 2000 event to the point where it was more than all of my net worth. And uh, I was eventually got to the point where I couldn't meet all the capital calls and had to sell a portion of that position for pennies on the dollar. And I'd seen all this coming and told them I was concerned about it. And they said I had absolutely nothing to worry about. And uh, it turned out I had plenty to worry about. So uh, that was uh, was kind of the, the backdrop, and I reinvented myself around 2007 or so, uh, 2006 or seven, as a full-time private investor out of necessity because the world's most prestigious investment bank had lost more than my more than half of my net worth, and uh, the private equity fund that was supposed to be for 10 years and was supposed to make me 50 million dollars according to their projections uh, basically did a little bit better than break even, but by the time you factor in the loss that I took by being forced to sell a portion of that interest at pennies on the dollar, it ended up as a negative for me. So over the course of more than uh, 10 years, they did nothing but lose money for me um, to, to the tune of about half of my net worth. And even to this day, 
they, you know, this was from 1999 to 2009 was the 10 year fixed term private equity fund. Well, it's seven years later, 2016, they've still got some of my money because they, they've extended the term of this thing somewhere in the fine print. It said they could do that. And, uh, you know, the, I basically figured out that Wall Street guys are crooked for the most part. And it's really amazing. It's the only business I can think of where it's not possible to hire competent help to manage your money for you. Sure, there's probably some small guys that are, are ethical and credible and so forth. But, you know, how do you find them? If you deal with the big investment banks, they're all a bunch of shysters. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, you've got no arguments from me. The actual business model itself is broken. But that, I guess that brings up a question. So, you know, you've spent a lot of time educating yourself to run your own money and you clearly understand global macro, you understand derivatives, commodities. What does the guy with some wealth but none of those skills do, in your opinion? Well, I'm actually working on uh, something I call accredited investor academy, which is just uh, I have passion for this issue because I was screwed so badly. You know, as a smart software guy, came into some money and uh, basically got taken to the cleaners by Wall Street. So I'm working on what was originally going to be a four-part series. Now it's at least five, and it's probably going to be seven by the time it's done. But it's a series of podcasts designed exactly to address that need, which is to uh, educate someone who has come into some money on how to reinvent yourself as a private investor and the path to learn about all this stuff because there's no college degree program that's going to prepare you for this. It's a, a process of learning about different investment vehicles and markets and it comes with a list of books to read. But even the list of books to read really depends on the person because the most important rule to all of this is what I call the Schwager Doctrine. And I, I name it that after Jack Schwager, who's a, a very well-respected author. And he posits that the only way to be successful in investing is to find the style of investing that matches your own personality. So there's no right way or wrong way to skin a cat. The right way to do it is to figure out what suits your personality. And for me, it's macroeconomics because it, it's essentially trying to solve the biggest and most complex problem in the history of the universe, which is how global financial markets work and what the interactions are between different aspects of them. A lot of people would say that's a dumb way to to do it. You want to pick something simple and uh, confined and something that you can become an expert on because it's a small enough thing. Why bite off something as big as global macroeconomic interactions between you know all the different countries in the world? The answer for me is because it's what my passion is. It's, it's what keeps me interested. And you've got to have something to keep you interested. Uh, you know, other people have other reactions to it. So it's really a matter of finding yourself in terms of what aspect of uh, trading or investing you really relate to. And there's a number of books that I recommend getting started with, but from there you really have to follow your own inner compass. Uh, the plan is at on the Macro Voices website where I, I publish the weekly podcast, we'll eventually have this accredited investor academy. And it's just something I've always wanted to do to try to help. You know, if I, I've always felt if I can help one person avoid the mistakes, you know, don't trust your lawyer who says to give your money to investment bankers. Learn to do it yourself. Uh, if I can teach one person 
person that uh, lesson and save them from losing half of their net worth, uh, it'll be worthwhile. Uh, the thing is, this is something I'm doing out of the goodness of my heart. It doesn't produce any income. So uh, it's a little bit behind schedule. I published the first episode. I'm saving the second episode because i got to have something to, to put up on the Macrovices website. We publish on Thursdays and the U.S. Thanksgiving holiday is coming up. So episode two is going to be uh, probably aired on, I think it's the 24th of uh, November, uh, which is the U.S. Thanksgiving holiday. And episodes three, four, and five haven't been produced yet. But at some point, uh, I'll be doing that. As far as the you know, to try to answer your question uh, right now, as I say, I started trying to answer it in four hours of podcasts and concluded that wasn't enough. It's more like a seven-hour answer. But the short uh, executive summary, reading the Market Wizards books by Jack Schwager is a start to get a taste of a lot of different styles of trading and investing, figuring out what you relate to personally, and then trying to educate yourself more about that style of investing and uh, taking responsibility for doing it yourself. Uh, it, you know, farming this stuff out to somebody else usually doesn't work out well. You're better off in almost every case to learn about markets and learn how to run your own money and not entrust a banker or other wealth manager. Very good. So let's dig in then to, you know, you've done quite a bit of work um, we spend a certain amount of time on commodities. So let's go there for a bit. One of the things that I love is history and cycles. And so when I look at it at the moment in terms of both the credit cycle and the commodity cycles, um, it's possibly fair to say that these cycles have been manipulated or at least to the very least affected by extraneous forces, principally uh, global coordinated central bank policies. That said, I don't see them the, um, actually changing those cycles. So, do you is is do you do you spend much time on cycles? And what's your current feeling on the actual commodity cycle, where we might be in that particular cycle? I was just interviewing Ralph Paul on this subject today, and I agree with his view, which is that. You know, it's hard to call tops and bottoms, but boy, soft commodities in particular. You look at the grains, they've been so beaten up by this cycle. And, you know, it, when does this turn around? Ralph thinks that the catalyst will be the weather pattern change from uh, El Nino to La Nina, which are essentially opposite uh, patterns of, of warming and cooling mm -hmm. of major oceans. Uh, you know, I don't know if that's the catalyst or not, but at some point we've got to see a turnaround and, uh, you know, I, grain prices are half of what they were a couple of years ago. Uh, oil prices are obviously severely depressed. Now, I think oil prices are going to stay low for at least the next several months. At some point, we're going to see a bottom, though. And was the $26 bottom earlier this year the bottom, or is it got still lower to go? It really depends on what happens with inventory this fall. But I think that by the end of 2016, we'll have seen uh, another low around the inventory and refinery maintenance season that will probably be the final low and we'll start looking for recovery in oil prices. Uh, IEA was just out with a new report saying they think that's gonna take longer than they thought. So, you know, it's really hard to time these things. But I do think that we've got some cycle lows coming up 
and there's going to be a buying opportunity to be long commodities. The problem is, as you say, central bank policy has distorted these cycles so badly that it's hard to just rely on historical norms and say, how long does a commodity cycle usually last? We've never had all of the central banks around the globe intervening in financial markets at the same time the way they are now. So we're in uncharted territory here, and it's hard to say uh, when the tide is going to change, but I definitely think that there's a buying opportunity in commodities uh, coming up sometime in the next year or two. Right. Now, there's some interesting points there, which I'd like to come back to on later, which, which tie into the coordination on central bank policy. But one of the other things that struck me when I was reading up on um, the work that you've done is you've spent a lot of time offshore of the US and multiple different countries, more than I've lived in, and I've thought I've lived in a few. And one of those being Hong Kong, which, as you know, is essentially a, a massive intellectual capital pool for Asia in general and China as well. Um, I was there fairly recently, and certainly there's an, they're experiencing this flood of capital uh, coming from the mainland. And, you know, China, Hong Kong has always been a conduit for mainland money out of, both in and out of China. Considering that Hong Kong currently boasts what is, I think, the second cheapest stock market in the world today after Russia, and given that you've spent significant time there, do you have any thoughts on that particular market? Well, in terms of the big picture for Hong Kong, and it's, it's really sad because I, I love Hong Kong. It's, it's one of my favorite cities in the world, and I've really enjoyed living there. But the problem is Hong Kong is protected by a treaty until 2049. Uh, it was the agreement for, I'm sorry, 2047. That was the agreement. The handover, of course, uh, was in 1997, and it was a 50-year treaty. And for those 50 years, Hong Kong would supposedly maintain its independence and have its own government, democratic government. And it is a territory of China, but it's not really part of the People's Republic of China. So while China is a communist country, Hong Kong has been consistently rated as number one in financial privacy. Uh, it's one of the best countries in the world. And most people in Hong Kong, especially Hong Kong Chinese, would tell you if you ask them what country they live in, Hong Kong. They don't think of themselves as Chinese or as part of China. They think of Hong Kong as a country. The problem is almost nobody believes that China is going to honor that commitment and allow Hong Kong to maintain its independence until 2047. So how much longer do we have this? And the problem, especially with real estate, is where the real estate in Hong Kong has really been fueled is dirty money leaking out of mainland China. The way it works is if you are a dirty politician in China, you cannot, uh, you've got that, all this. Isn't that tautology? <laughs> yeah, that's, if you're a, a politician in China and you've got a bunch of bribe money, you can't easily get it across the border. What you do is you take a little holiday and you go to Macau, which is also a territory of China. And the underworld in Macau is ready for you because you're their favorite customer. And you say, oh, I seem to have forgotten my wallet. Could I have a small credit line to play the, the tables at the casino with? Oh, sure. How much? Oh, 10 million U.S. dollars. Oh, sure. No problem. Here you go. And you can pay us back in Chinese renminbi when you get back to your city in China where you 
you know, everybody has bribed you. We'll take care of fronting you the money here. And of course, what you do is you play a few rounds. You don't put too much of it at risk. You get on the high-speed jet ferry and you go to Hong Kong and you spend the money there. And it is a way to get money out of mainland China. Uh, and what you do with it is you buy Hong Kong real estate. And it's for that reason that Hong Kong real estate is just prodigiously expensive, way beyond anything that could remotely ever be justified by the incomes of people actually living in Hong Kong. And for that reason, the, the cost of living in Hong Kong, everything is cheap. The food is cheap. The subway is cheap. Everything's cheap until you pay your rent. And it is just crazy. It's the only place in the world that I know of that costs more than New York City and gives you even less in terms of the quality of housing and, and the size of the housing that you get for your dollar. So the problem with all this is when this system changes someday and Hong Kong becomes part of the People's Republic of China, it's no longer a place to escape to. And the, the, the whole value proposition will have changed. Similarly, the function that Hong Kong provides in the global economy is it's kind of the Western world, not inside communist China financial center. Well, Shanghai wants to become the de facto uh, financial center for all of Asia. Why can Hong Kong still compete with it? Because it's not in the People's Republic of China. Well, when it is someday, how are you going to compete with Shanghai? So a lot of people in Hong Kong feel like, you know, the future of Hong Kong is kind of a doomsday scenario. And the real estate and the financial markets and everything else in Hong Kong is going to go away someday. Now, a lot of people panicked at the time of the handover and bailed out of Hong Kong and went to Canada. And a lot of them came back because they said, oh, wait a minute, you know, it, 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 right. China didn't breach the agreement right away. And they're back, but now they're really starting to get worried. And China has been much more aggressive in the last few years uh, in terms of their influence. And they, one of the things that, that's in this uh, agreement is they have to allow Hong Kong to have its own independent, democratically elected government. So what China said in the last few day, few years is, well, if we give you two or three choices, <laughs> those choices picked by the communist government of China, and we say, you get to pick which one of our front men is in charge of your government. Well, that's democracy because you get to choose. So we'll do it that way. You know, so they're slowly going through this process of uh, breaching the independence agreement. And a lot of people in Hong Kong feel very betrayed by the British for uh, giving the country away to China. And it's a question of time. And I, I know the way I feel about it is there's no doubt about the fact that certainly by 2047, if not sooner, then Hong Kong's just going to be another city in China. And I'm not going to want to live there then. So I mean, I expect to be alive in 2047. So it's not a rest of my life uh, place. It's where I keep my legal residency right now, but I, I don't plan to stay there for the rest of my life because like most people in Hong Kong, I'm not crazy about what the eventual annexation of Hong Kong into China is going to be. As far as markets are concerned, um, I think the, the Hong Kong stock market does look uh, pretty strong right now. I do have a position in the Hang Seng Stock Index, uh, which I, I use in order to qualify for my continued residency in Hong Kong. But as far as long-term, unfortunately, uh, I'm very concerned about the long-term prospects for Hong Kong because of the political situation. And then if we think about the ramifications of China taking over Hong Kong, whether it be 2047 or prior, 
then the shift of capital that we're likely to see, um, certainly within Asia, is likely to move to places like Singapore. That would sort of, um, you know, I, I speak to a lot of fund managers in the region, and a business partner of mine is based in Bangkok. The topic I keep often asking about is in terms of safety within that region. You know, where is it? And I, I spoke with um, a portfolio company that I have who are made up um, essentially by military individuals who worked in the region. So they don't come from a financial perspective, but more from a um, military and political perspective. And I asked them the same question. I said, where in Asia is safety? And all of them um, actually pointed to is Japan, which is quite interesting. I mean, there's Singapore, but, but Japan is still, look, it's a country that is ethnically homogenous. It is still has incredible intellectual property. So that's, that's, that's quite interesting because if we look at the sort of um, makeup of what Japan looks like today, it is also, you know, if we, if we look at the equity markets in Hong Kong, we could say, well, they're relatively cheap on a global scale, but the same could be argued for Japan. Do you have any thoughts on Japan as we come moving around that region? Well, you know, my experience doing business with Japan when I was in the software business, it's a, it's fantastic culture. I, I love the food. Uh, I, I appreciate the culture, but boy, it's a very, very close culture. Uh, I find that even traveling in Japan, unless you've got a Japanese with you who knows the culture and kind of can play tour guard, uh, you know, it's a very, very difficult culture to deal with just because they're so xenophobic and don't, uh, don't really welcome foreigners. Uh, as far as the, you know, dirty money leaking out of China thing, there, there's huge, huge cultural uh, differences between China and Japan. And I, I think that a more likely place for the trend to continue as far as what happens to money leaking out of China is to go into places like Canadian real estate. Vancouver was the favored destination and it created so much of a housing bubble in Vancouver that the officials actually responded by slapping a foreign buyer tax on real estate transactions. And that has been successful at popping the bubble in Vancouver. But now what's happening is the Chinese buyers are going to Toronto instead. And so I think what you're seeing is although uh, to some extent, you know, the, you're right that Singapore and Japan are both attractive financial places in Asia. I think the dirty money in Asia is trying to get out of Asia completely, and they favor London and Vancouver, or, or now uh, San Francisco and, uh, and Toronto uh, real estate. Uh, Asian culture in general tends to put a lot more faith on hard assets. They like precious metals. They like real estate, but you know, share, real estate. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's something that people don't understand either. When they talk about these ghost cities in China, um, they don't care. They, they don't care. And the thing, you know, if you told me that you had a bunch of real estate, I know you have a lot of experience in real estate and every single one of your properties was vacant with no tenant. I would think, Oh my goodness, Chris, I feel so bad for you. Well, the average buyer of Chinese real estate doesn't want tenants because in that culture, they feel that the value of newly constructed real estate is compromised by having tenants in it. And they would rather let it sit empty as a store of value. Just as if you had gold coins, you probably wouldn't rent them out to anyone. You'd want to keep them. The Chinese mindset is when you invest in property as a store of value, you don't want a tenant in it because the tenant might screw it up. 
So it's a very different culture, and uh, they, the, these ghost cities are, in many cases, uh, people knew when they were getting in that they were buying real estate that would stay empty for years and years, and they intended that. Now, it's very difficult for me to understand a real estate investment with no source of income, but it, it, they see it as a store of value. They see it as a place to park disposable money. Um, we saw that I used to live in Chiang Mai for some time, and you had the same element there. It's interesting because you'd have this South Korean investment because there's a trader, um, there's a visa agreement between South Korea and Thailand. And so there's a lot of South Koreans up in the north of Thailand and they're all you know, buying and living there, but occupied homes. And then there's the Chinese element. And as you quite correctly mentioned, they're more than happy to purchase vacant real estate um, with no intention at all to um, put anybody in it. So you have these beautiful condos and homes in a number of the gated communities, which bought and just left. It's a different ideology around um, investment, but I think the Western mindset has been one of valuing something on ratios, right? So you have your PE ratios or you have your your cap rate or your yield and a, a cap rate and a yield is inconsequential to um, to that mindset. I think from that element, you, you know, you made the case for Chinese money leaking out of China and going to places of safety. And so Western world is certainly considered to be safer than Asia for Chinese. And, you know, we've seen the same thing in Australian real estate, which again, now they've, they've put a tax on foreign investment, um, much like Canada's done, or should I say Vancouver has done. Um, and here where I'm based in New Zealand at the moment, um, we've got, similar issues with Auckland housing, not to the extent that you have it in Canada, um, but it's it's capital seeking a home. And I know many people who've literally watched that process and become very wealthy simply identifying where the capital is going to flow and then setting themselves up to, you know, to sell to the incoming buyers. If you look at the, uh, the devaluation that you've had in the Remnambi and the consequent problems that are inherent in the Chinese economy. Do you have any sort of feelings as to anything that may actually curtail that leakage of capital out of China due to a restructuring within China where um, A, the, the credit crisis is dealt with in some shape or form, probably via a, a cheaper currency, which in itself would first it would send more capital out, but as things sort of settle down, potentially it would, you would have a situation where it wouldn't be such a, a flight of capital. Do you see any catalysts to a stemming of capital flight from China? Because it's, it's, you know, this has been going on for a good number of years now, and it doesn't seem to be doing anything but accelerating. Well, I agree with you. I, I think, for sure, China, China's government is trying to have a big crackdown on government corruption and stop the leakage of capital out of the country. And I think that probably what has changed is that from the highest levels of Chinese government, 
they're trying. But, you know, this is as if the biggest mafia crime family said, okay, we've got to have a crackdown on the criminals within our organization. Well, okay, that's everybody. So I think they're, they're trying, but the most astute will continue to, uh, to be successful. And I think the other thing that you have to understand about that culture you know, a lot of uh, Americans say are, are just extremely proud of their country and would never want to live anyplace else. Wealthy Chinese are very much looking for the opportunity to figure out where in the West they can go buy up expensive real estate, send their kids to go to college, and create a, uh, a lifestyle for their families that's outside of China. That whole pride thing of it has to be in our country that we were born in. They're, they're not uh, restricted by that. They're quite happy to look for opportunities to get dirty money out of China into a place like Canada, where once they've got it out, it's not gonna you know, get taken back away from them. I think what has changed is places like Hong Kong, uh, it's still its own separate place, but it's clear that the tide is changing. So I think Hong Kong, or real estate in particular, is really in trouble because smart Chinese are going to stop using Hong Kong as the place to take their dirty money out, even though it's one of the easiest places to get to physically for Chinese. Uh, it's not as attractive as a place to park your dirty money anymore. Uh, Singapore, as you said, is a very safe place, but it's also a very by-the-book uh, legal system with huge, huge uh, extreme penalties for any kind of illegal activity. Probably not the best place to take your dirty money. You know, Canada and uh, and London seem to be you know the, the the places that the real estate is benefiting the most. San Francisco has benefited a lot from uh, Chinese money coming out, but the problem there is if you in order to get residency. Uh, where you can go there frequently, even a green card, you become a tax uh, citizen of the United States, even if you're not a, a real citizen. Uh, all of your worldwide income becomes taxable by the United States. So they tend to favor Canada and London over the United States uh, for that reason. Uh, as far as what would change it, I, I don't think anything changes that. I think that uh, the government in China will continue their crackdown efforts, but you know the whole the whole place is corrupt, and the the most corrupt people are going to continue to succeed at getting money out of the country. I can't agree. I can't disagree with anything that you said there, Eric. The other thing that you know, the, let's talk about the elephant on the block, if we will, which is sovereign debt. You know, something that I, I think anybody that's interested in global macroeconomics keeps a very close eye on. One of the things that I've been noticing, the one-year LIBOR, which is, I think, always indicative of where we may be headed one way or the other, one-year LIBOR is up about 100 basis points in the last 18 months. Now, we know that there's the restructuring of the money market industry, which I think has been a large factor in, um, in that. But I'm curious as to your feeling of the, the sort of sovereign debt markets in general and whether we've... We've sort of turned a corner, if you will, on the bond market. Certainly, it's, 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 you know, we've been through this period, which is, by any historical standards, um, an anomaly. Well, it, you certainly got the right question. I might be beyond my pay grade to give you an authoritative answer, but you know, we're, we're somewhere near the end of a 35-year bull market in bonds, and it's definitely uh, a bubble, a blow-off top kind of situation. Uh, by any normal 
economic measure, the top should have already been in and we should be headed towards higher rates. The thing is that if central banks around the world can just conjure money out of thin air at will and use it to buy up, you know, to bid the price of sovereign debt even higher, uh, really that doesn't have to stop until something ties their hands. So we've got just in the last few weeks some really famous people, Jeff Gundlach, uh, at Double Line, very, very, very successful bond fund manager, saying he thinks that the bottom is in on bond yields. It's all uphill from here. It's time to short sovereign debt. Um, okay, Ray Dalio, uh, another super famous hedge fund manager, says this credit cycle is done. It's over. Uh, I just interviewed Raul Paul about this today, and he still sees it. You know, why is it over? Sovereign, you know, it's it's we're headed probably into a recession so from a cyclical standpoint lower yields are likely still coming what would happen if we're headed into a global recession central banks will conjure even more money out of thin air and they'll use it to bid up sovereign debt treasuries in in order to save markets so uh, it shouldn't be happening. I think it's kind of immoral that governments get away with this stuff, but it is happening. And the way that I look at it is I don't see why the cycle is over until something ties the central banker's hands. And I could see two things potentially doing that. If at some point we start to have a problem with runaway inflation, now central bankers can't just conjure money out of thin air because it would... Uh, exacerbate the inflation problem and they would have to hike rates in order to arrest the runaway inflation. We haven't seen any sign of runaway inflation yet, so that's not here yet. The other thing would be a long overdue political outcry. If people wised up or some of their politicians wised up and recognized that all of this money printing you know, has been incredibly successful at saving the assets of the 1% at the expense of the other 99% of society around them uh, who've had their entire money supply diluted in terms of its, uh, its long-term real value uh, and, and stopped tolerating this activity from central bankers. Uh, that would change everything. Now, you're seeing the beginnings of that, you know, Donald Trump has been very outspoken that if he were elected, uh, you know, he wouldn't let the, the Fed get away with doing this. He has accused the Federal Reserve of propping up markets in order to make Obama look good. I don't think it's to make Obama look good. I think they're, they're trying to do what they think is the right thing, which is to in, engage in interventionism as a way of preventing a market crash. And to my thinking, that just makes the eventual crash that much worse when it happens. So, you know, you're, you're getting a short-term benefit of delaying the inevitable, but it comes at the expense of the inevitable being worse. Um, so what's going to tie their hands? Uh, the way I look at this, until the, the central banker's hands have been tied or I can see something like early signs of an inflation cycle beginning that I can predict would tie their hands in the future, I'm not ready to short bonds yet. Uh, a lot of people, the very famous people, say the bottom is in on yields. They might be right. I don't know. It's interesting. You brought up a topic there which I've been writing about quite a bit. At some point, you've, you have, there's an enormous amount of quantitative data that we can all look at and we can use to ascertain where things may be going. 
But if I go back and I look at the history, typically it's not the quantitative that actually provides you with, shall we say, the straw that breaks the camel's back. It's the qualitative issues. And one of the topics you just mentioned there was essentially political zeitgeist. And so in the US, the, um, there, there's, a, there's a, a significant shift in that political zeitgeist. The very fact that Trump exists today um, is testament to that. I think if we go back, say, 10, 15, yeah, 10 years ago, um, I don't think the, the the playground was fertile enough for, for Trump to even get a look in. But today that's a different situation. And we see the same sort of um, experiences over in Europe with you know, Austria on the second, they're going to be voting again. And it looks like the right-wing um, Nationalist Party will take that seat. There's enormous shifts towards the right across um, Europe. I mean, Brexit, I guess, was um, was one of those first shifts. And over the next 12 months, we're going to have the US first, Germany, France, and then the Netherlands, all not insignificant countries that are all experiencing a rising trend towards nationalism and protectionism. And in that sort of environment, I do wonder about things like austerity. Um, certainly, if, if I was a politician in Europe, I would blame everything that I could possibly uh, blame on Brussels, and I would blame it on the euro, and I would blame it on the, the political machinations which have restricted a lot of those countries from doing what they had previously done, which was to devalue their currencies, for example. That, that's always been the exit valve, one which has been significantly capped. And so I do wonder if that sort of political shift or that political or the, the, the zeitgeist within the populace allowing for that political shift to take place could be the catalyst to a number of things. One that is on my radar is a shift from monetary stimulus, which we've had now since the GFC, to one of fiscal stimulus, because it, you know, there's a fairly easy political argument to be had to say that, look, it hasn't worked, um, the monetary stimulus, and we're going to bring back jobs and we're going to build our country. I think both Trump and Hillary, for example, have been rattling on about this. Um, Hillary came out with um, what is she going to spend? Two hundred and seventy-five, I think, billion, something of that nature, uh, promising that on on infrastructure. And Trump came out doubling it. Um, I expect not necessarily because there was any quantitative data behind the double, but just the fact that he could actually say it's double. But certainly, there's, I think, there's a potential for a large fiscal stimulus plan. Um, and in fact, if you think through what that could entail, I'm not saying it will, and I'm still struggling with this a little bit in my head, that could, if it's allocated correctly, um, that could bump GDP. And that in itself could increase inflation um, and, you know, give plausibility to, to uh, rates going higher. So it's sort of, you know, that you have this knock-on effect that could actually turn that whole bond market um, because there's a political shift in, in place. Um, there's a, there's a, a rhetoric that, that is very plausible for politicians to use um, to bring about um, a change in, in the way things have been run. 
Um, and all of that could actually bode relatively well for um, interest rates going up, which is to say that it would bode poorly for the bond market. Have you got any, have you sort of given any thought towards the political changes and how those might affect these markets? Yes, I have. And unfortunately, I, I agree with much of what you said, but I, I, I extrapolate a little bit farther in time. And I think it's a very, very, very sad picture, which is you've gotten to the point where monetary policy has been exhausted in terms of, uh, of its efficacy. And I agree with you that major fiscal stimulus is going to be the, the next big thing. Okay, well, you can't do a bunch of infrastructure spending and actually pay for it, uh, you know, w w without creating an amendous, uh, tremendous burden on the economy. So you've got to use deficit spending to, you know, print up even more borrowed money and stretch the debt limit even farther than it's already stretched. Eventually, you will get to the point where all of this continued borrowing and spending and living beyond our means catches up with us. And it catches up to you in the form of runaway inflation. And when that happens and you start to get an inflationary depression, all of the sudden governments are really out of bullets at that point. What do you do when you get to the point where your fiscal stimulus has failed because you, uh, you broke the debt system by overextending and overspending on borrowed money? What you do is you blame people that don't look like you. You pick a fight with somebody and you take the uh, rising revolution around you of people who are totally fed up with government and you have to find a way to reunify them so that they don't turn on the government. And History has proven over and over again that there's only one proven way to do that, which is unite people around the emotion of patriotism by telling them that their very way of life is threatened by some foreign group. And you look at this whole thing with ISIS in the United States. You know, the ISIS was created by the United States uh, in in. The, the sense of where the organization came from. A lot of the armament that they have was provided to rebels that were supposedly going to, uh, you know, use it to, to do something in the U.S. best interest. And, you know, now there's a bunch of Humvees in, in the hands of ISIS, and they're using U.S. manufactured and supplied weapons in order to fight against us. So uh, you're, you're going to see more and more artificially created uh, foreign bad guys. And you look at Hillary Clinton and her rhetoric towards Russia and how Russia has to pay a price. She, her, her rhetoric is basically trying to pick a fight and start a war with a nuclear superpower. This is, this is uh, the beginning of something very, very bad. And I don't know how many years to, it takes to play out. If there's anything that I've learned about this, the, the worst mistake you can make is when you wake up and realize how screwed up the world uh, government and economic system really is, you, you start to panic and predict that everything is going to come collapsing. You know, I have to you know, sell everything, head for the hills and buy peanut butter and ammunition because Armageddon is coming. Uh, I think something really horrible is coming in our lifetimes, but it could be still another decade before 
the governments screw things up badly enough that it gets to the point where a global war is the only way to take attention off of how badly governments have screwed up. But I think it's coming, and uh, I hope that it's farther out than I fear that it might be. I try to just live my life day to day and uh, enjoy the moment and know that probably uh, the the worst times of our lives in terms of the uh, you know the the geopolitical backdrop of something like a, a global war situation could be ahead of us still. So I think these are the good old days, and uh, we're not anywhere close to that yet. As you say, the next big thing should probably be fiscal stimulus that can go ahead and pump the economy up and pump interest rates up for a few years before inflation becomes a major problem. But at some point, you've got to pay the piper, and we've been living beyond our means for too long now. Yeah, you bring up a good point around essentially what is behavioral psychology and the fact that it's always easiest to blame somebody that looks different, right? And... You know, we're seeing a lot of that in Europe, which is, I think you know, in large part that was Brexit. The terrorist attacks, which have now ignited the nation's citizens, but not necessarily the governments just yet, they're a little bit slow to catch up um, against immigrants in particular. And it's it's a fertile playground to be able to come into and... Um, and say that these problems that exist are um, a result of, uh, and you can pick whoever it is that you want to pick and unite people for the cause, if you will, which distracts them from some of the issues that have actually led you into that particular situation. And it's times like these where you have the probability of a rise of um, people that complete psychopaths. Um, I don't, it's, it's very difficult to assess these things beforehand. And you can look at, you know, in the US, you can look at Trump and Hillary. And to me, they're just two podium donuts. But certainly, either of them hovering over the red button does give me pause for concern. And if you sort of play through what this could look like, I mean, I'm a market observer. I don't, firstly, I don't vote anywhere that I've lived in the world. And I don't, the only votes that I make are with my own capital because I think that's where it matters. If I look at Europe, the idea that the euro can last through a setup whereby you would have this breaking up of the European Union, if you will, which is which is really just, if you go back in history, it's a, it's a number of tribes who always fought with each other. And I think that there's a, there's a great probability of a return to those tribal sort of roots, if you will. You know, we're seeing, you know, everyday riots, for example, in the streets. I was just um, looking at an article this morning on uh, riots in the streets in Germantown where um, Germans have become incensed with uh, migrants there and they're uh, marching down the streets saying Germany is for Germans, right? And, um, and you know, I think we're going to increasingly see that sort of uh, experience across Europe. And in that sort of environment, I don't, I, I don't see how the borders can stay open. And I don't, if the borders are not open, then the next step is why would you have a currency system that isn't essentially open for all those countries? And they're all capped under one regime, which is governed by Brussels. 
So I don't, I struggle to figure out, what, to, to throw rocks at um, what is essentially a short position on the euro. Do you, do you agree with that or do you have any sorts of ideas on um, what could be in store for the euro? Well, I think the problem is that, again, you don't, I think it's safe to assume that there's no act of desperation that central bankers won't stoop to before it's over. They're not going to say, boy, you know what, this whole fascist idea of intervening in markets and the government kind trying to control everything turned out to be a bad idea. We shouldn't be doing it. Let's reform ourselves. That's never going to happen. They will continue to try to manipulate and control markets uh, for what they think is, is the better good until it fails catastrophically. And as I said earlier, the biggest mistake that you can make is as you start to learn about these things and realize just how totally screwed up things are, it's human nature to want to predict, you know, well, I just learned about it this week, so that must mean next week is when the huge cataclysmic event happens. And, of course, the bigger a ship is, the longer it takes to change course. The European Union has been around for, what is it, 20 28 years or something. Uh, it's uh, the, the amount of investment in uh, the European Union on the part of politicians and, you know, it's their whole world. They cannot let it fail. Now, they're trying to do the impossible. Eventually, I think it will fail. But there's no act of desperation that they won't resort to before they let that happen. And the problem is when you start to look at things like, you know, sovereign debt risk, it looked in 2012 like, boy, it was really time to be short European sovereign debt. Well, then we we got Mario, you know, just going crazy with doing anything it takes, no matter how reckless it might seem to other people, in order to bail that market out. And you've got negative yielding, uh, you know, even European uh, debt that's negative yielding now, despite the massive risk that exists there. So central bankers can distort the, uh, the normal market function, the everything history tells you about what the price signal is supposed to mean is being distorted by government intervention. And we're in un- uncharted territory. Uh, eventually, I think it all ends very, very badly. And when we get to the point where the financial Armageddon is finally unavoidably upon us, I think that's when uh, governments will resort to trying to unify people behind the government by labeling some, you know, pick your de jour foreign group that supposedly is a bad guy. It's all their fault. The reason that's exactly what happened in, in Nazi Germany is, you know, post-World War One, you had such economic desperation in Germany, which had previously been probably the, the most uh, sophisticated and advanced industrial economy in the world. And, you know, people literally can't eat. Well, a guy like Hitler comes along and starts blaming somebody that doesn't look like us. It's all the Jews' fault if it wasn't for them. And, and, and they're easy to hate because they've got money. Oh, boy, yeah, it's got to be all their fault. And people can be driven by their governments in the name of patriotism to do utterly crazy things. So I think the opportunity, you know, there's only a few moments in history when a person as crazy as Adolf Hitler could actually be successful at persuading people to do just unthinkable things. Well, we're coming into 
uh, another period where the economic backdrop is going to be ripe for the Hitler types to uh, to start slinging their rhetoric and blaming foreigners for everything that's wrong and telling their people that their entire way of life is threatened and we have to save what we you know what what is owed to us what we deserve our way of life needs to be preserved and the way to do that is to you know kill somebody in some other country and uh, unfortunately that's what's worked in the past in order to unite people around a government that has been recklessly irresponsible in terms of its finances and that's certainly if you look at europe you've got some of the highest unemployment rates that have existed and if we shift from what is essentially a deflationary environment into an inflationary one then that's a catalyst that um, does look fairly frightening. The last question that I have for you, Eric, is around two things, the dollar and gold. What are your thoughts on those? I mean, uh, I know there's many, many arguments that the dollar is probably um, long-term doomed. Um, I can't disagree with that. But then we, we live in a relative world. So you say doomed against what? Against the euro? Against the yen? Um, that looks questionable. So what are your thoughts on the dollar and then um, gold? First of all, in the very long term, I absolutely think that the dollar is doomed. And, uh, you know, Robert Triffin predicted this, what, 60 years ago uh, when he described how, you know, what, what causes a currency to be chosen as the world's reserve currency being the strongest credit? What is the result of being chosen as the world's reserve currency? Well, it allows the issuing nation to spend recklessly beyond its means without the usual consequences because there's such an artificial demand created around the globe for that global reserve currency. And that Triffin predicted back in the 1950s, I think it was 57, that he predicted that would eventually be the dollar's undoing, that the U.S. government would be prone towards overspending, deficit spending, and military adventurism until they eventually uh, borrowed and spent to the point that the dollar failed and had to lose its reserve currency status. Well, even after going off the gold standard in 71, we've gone 45 more years and the dollar is still the de facto reserve currency, probably more than anything else because there is no viable alternative. There's no bond market anywhere in the world that is deep and liquid enough to absorb central bank-sized capital flows the way the U.S. Treasury market does. So for this foreseeable future, as you think about flight capital, when things go wrong and people are panicking because, let's say, some European governments uh, you know, start to collapse and we have exit contagion in Europe, more countries wanting to leave the European Union, uh, other currencies collapsing, other economies collapsing, where the safety trade is going to go is into U.S. treasuries. And I know that sounds crazy. A lot of gold bugs would tell you, no, 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 people are going to wise up and they're, they're going to buy gold because it's a smarter move than buying U.S. treasuries. It is a smarter move, but if you're managing $10 billion and you need to move oh, just 10% of it, the thing to remember is if you're, if you're running $10 billion, you are not an individual trader who can just do what you want. You have a mandate legally as to what you're allowed to invest in. And a lot of the biggest managed money in the world cannot 
invest in gold if they wanted to. They are, their legal mandate prevents them from doing that. So as much as the gold bugs pipe dream is, oh, people are all going to wise up and invest in gold. Yeah, it is a smarter move, but it's not what's going to happen. The U.S. dollar is going to stay and think of this as a blow-off top. It's a bubble that's going to blow bigger and bigger until someday it bursts. And if there's anything I've come around to in the last few years, you know, uh, five, six years ago, I might have been prone towards that thinking of, you know, the dollar's about to collapse. No, the dollar's going to collapse someday when this game is over. And the game is a long way from over. And right now what you're seeing is a lot of flight capital from Europe, China, Japan, that is going to continue to flow into U.S. dollars and strengthen the U.S. dollar relative to other currencies. At some point, gold will be the ultimate benefactor because people will realize that the, the end game is on for the U.S. dollar. And if it's not going to be the U.S. dollar, at some point, precious metals have to win out of all this. So one of the things that a trade that I really like, I was just talking to Raul Paul about it earlier today, is simultaneously long gold and long the U.S. dollar index. And a lot of people would tell you, wait a minute, that's, that doesn't make sense because those historically are inversely correlated. You know, if one's going up, the other is going down. Well, from a hedging standpoint, that's absolutely true. It is very, very hard for me to conceive of a scenario where both gold and the U.S. dollar index are going down in a, in a sustainable trend at the same time. Now, I can see plenty of scenarios where one or the other takes a fall. Uh, if, for instance, Janet Yellen finally admits that this rate hiking cycle is over and that the economy just doesn't allow them to hike rates any further, the dollar would definitely take a stumble, but gold would perform tremendously. Similarly, if they do hike rates and they are able to, uh, to to do a couple of rate hikes, say, that is going to tremendously benefit the dollar index because now there's a better return available to that flight capital. The differential between European sovereign yields, which are negative, and, a, and, a, and an improving U.S. Uh, yield, it's going to attract a tremendous amount of capital, but gold is going to take a hit. So I can see the scenario where uh, the dollar does well and gold does poorly. I can see the opposite scenario. I can also see the scenario where people start to see the end game coming. So the dollar is doing well because people are going out of other currencies into the dollar, but the smartest ones are wising up and they're moving into gold instead. That happens. You get a home run play out of that pairs trade, long dollar index, long gold at the same time. Where you get killed is if both gold and the dollar index take a nosedive at the same time. Well, how would that happen? What would cause that to happen? I spend a lot of time pondering that. I was just interviewing Raul Paul, one of the, the smartest macro observers and analysts in the world today. He can't see. You know, we both agree that there's a lot of volatility, a lot of noise, as Raul put it, in that trade. There's a, a very serious risk that you could have uh, something like a, a rate hike event, you know, temporarily put a, a tax on the dollar index. But as far as a long-term trend where they both go down together, neither Raul or I can see it coming. And I, I really like that trade for that reason. What you are is you're essentially synthetically short the alternatives, which are the euro and the yen. If you're thinking about where large global capital flows can move to, those are the two 
alternatives because they've got deep liquid bond markets. And so by being long the dollar index and being long gold, you're essentially synthetically short those two. That's sort of the yes, that's, that a, that's an excellent way of analyzing it. And I could put an even another spin on it, which is what is a gold buyer really doing? They're saying that they want to be short fiat currency and long a hard asset, which is not dependent on government fiat. The problem with the gold trade by itself is if gold is priced in U.S. dollars, even though its value as far as the, the opinion of the gold bug is concerned is going up, its price in U.S. dollars might be going down if the dollar index is benefiting from those other currencies failing around it. By having the long position on the dollar index, you're hedging that risk and you've got the, the play of gold against other currencies and you're hedging out the risk that gold is priced in dollars couldn't agree more i think that if you're looking at looking at a trade to place where you can sleep well at night um, and sit in it for shall we say the next half a decade at least um, that seems like a, a prudent strategy well eric really thoroughly appreciate your time and your knowledge on the space and would love to do it again sometime Okay, it's been my pleasure, and uh, I hope your listeners enjoy it. Uh, I do also host the Macro Voices podcast, which is a free podcast that looks at macro issues. We uh, publish that every Thursday evening uh, at macrovoices.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Yep. Um, it's something that I've been listening to for some time, and I highly recommend it. Thanks very much. We appreciate it. Thanks very much for tuning in. To receive more great subscriber-only information, go to capitalistexploits.at.